042 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we discuss Season 1, Episode 14, Genderbender. This episode originally aired on January 21st, 1994. The average IMDb user rating is 7.3 out of 10, which is one of the lower scores for the first season. Now, as we mentioned last time, this episode has a number of firsts, at least as far as the X-Files goes. This was the first episode to be directed by Rob Bowman. Prior to his work on the X-Files, Rob Bowman's directorial background came from directing three episodes of Stingray, an episode of 21 Jump Street, The Highwaymen, an episode of MacGyver, an episode of Baywatch, 13 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, an episode of Quantum Leap. So he had some background. He was also an associate producer on the original run of the A-Team. He was someone else who came in through the Stephen J. Cannell company. And he's still working with Stephen J. Cannell. Today, he's probably best known as one of the executive producers on Castle. And he's also directed 17 episodes of that series so far. This was his first directorial episode of The X-Files, certainly not his last. He's also moved on to directing some feature films, including, but not limited to, Reign of Fire and Elektra, as well as The X-Files, Fight the Future, that came out in 1998. Elektra and Reign of Fire may not have been box office smashes, and they are certainly not above criticism. One of the things that we do see in Rob Bowman's directorial style is that he's a very strong visual director. Doesn't necessarily always pick the strongest scripts to work from, as again, you can see from Electra and Rain and Fire, but even those movies, you can agree, look very good on screen. This was also the first episode that was written by the team of Paul and Larry Barber. I've been able to find a lot of information on them. I do suspect they're related, given that everything we see in their IMDb history, these guys are a team. If one's credited with a particular episode of a particular show, so is the other one. Now, they served as producer on three episodes of The X-Files, and they were co-writers on this episode only. This is also the first episode of The X-Files that takes us back to a location we've seen before. In fact, two of them. The action in this episode is split between Maryland and Massachusetts. And we've been to Maryland for the first time with Squeeze, and we went to Massachusetts for the first time in Fire. And I said there's also a fairly inconsequential first in this one. That's more of my personal history. As I mentioned before, I didn't start watching The X-Files regularly until about Season 3. I was Season 2, it was whenever I could catch it, whenever it was convenient, but I didn't go out of my way for it. Season 2 finale is when it became appointment television for me, and it was from Season 3 through the rest of the run. Genderbender is actually the only first season episode that I saw in its original debut. So, I admit, I was teenage boy flipping through channels. Cut into the episode about a minute in, so the clip I missed the first time was a decent but not spectacular looking woman picking up a guy at a club and inviting him back to her place. The club sequence, as I mentioned before, is very visual, as is common with Rob Bowman directorial work. They even have the club music pounding so hard you can't hear the dialogue. Everything is communicated through body language and a bit of lip reading. They go back to her place. There's some sparse dialogue after the fact as the woman gets up, leaves the bed, he's behind raving about how good it was, when all of a sudden the man has a coronary. And the woman who left the room becomes a man before she leaves the hotel. And from there, end of the teaser, we cut to the credits. As a teenage boy seeing this scene, yeah, I originally tuned in for the couple in bed, I admit it, and I stuck around with the gender swap. And then cut to the X-Files credits, I'd heard a little bit about the show. I had a classmate who was a huge fan of it and had been recommending to everybody that we start watching it, but I hadn't tried that yet. After the teaser, we see Mulder and Scully in the hotel room gathering evidence, and to take about the M.O., so as far as 
we could tell the guy had a coronary. Scully even comments it's odd in this day and age to think that anyone's was having sex with complete strangers. And she even questions why they've been called in on it when someone said, well, there's an open file if anyone sees a murder with this MO to call the Bureau. At which point Mulder says, thank you for the call. We get a bit of an exasperated look from Scully where she realizes Mulder's already got an open X file that he hasn't bothered to share with her. Which happens a little bit in the earlier seasons, not so much by the end. And from here, we cut to another slideshow in Mulder's office as he's running through the previous murders that he's seen. So this is actually the fifth murder victim. And one of the issues that they've had with it is that the camera caught the woman going in and a man leaving, but nothing else. They're looking for accomplices, things like that. The only solid piece of evidence that they found is that the scratches on the victim's back have white clay in them. And this is a particular type of white clay that is found only in one region, where some religious fundamentalists, known as the Kindred, have basically set up shop, and that's where they've established themselves. So Mulder and Scully go to check them out in the local community. And they seem to be, at this stage at least, someone inspired by Hutterites or Mennonites and other fundamentalist communities. Similar dress, similar garb. They're moving with the horse-drawn carriages, rejecting technology, famous for abstinence. So we get a bit of a feel for what they're doing. And Mulder and Scully head to Stevestown, Massachusetts to talk to them and try and establish connections. And one of them is out taking care of the horse while everyone else goes into the feed store. While well, Mulder goes in to try and get some information from them, Scully stays outside and tries to introduce herself to one of them. Turns out later his name is Brother Andrew. He doesn't open up at first, but it is start rubbing Scully's hand and we can see something happening to her. Uh, one of the things that came out during Mulder's slideshow is that a lot of the victims had incredible amounts of pheromones in the system containing human DNA. So they're basically walking sex magnets. And this individual that Scully seemed to be viewing solely as a means to an end, when he starts rubbing her hand, we can see he's having a pretty spectacular effect on her. And it really starts to set things up. We're starting to get a feel that it's not just maybe this one member, but there's something going on with the entire clan of Kindred. For the majority of the episode now, we're actually following Mulder and Scully as they're trying to make inroads in the Kindred community. So they follow them up to the hills. They are told that while Mulder and Scully are welcome, their weapons are not. They're invited into the community, and there's a few odd things. For example, no children. It's strictly adults. And there's also a few touches, and that's one of the nice things that happens here. There's a mix of some pretty good dialogue from the barbers, as well as a lot of Rob Bowman's visual touches. They're at a dinner table, and Mulder and Scully reveal some of the information that they know to try and build trust and get to their goals and solve these murders, while the kindred reveal nothing, to the point where there's uh, emotional and violent outburst from one of the members there that disrupts them right before they really start pushing and there's no other way to get out of it. Now, again, I noticed that we see a lot of Rob Bowman's visual style. When the man has an outburst, the leader of the community asks him to stand up. When he does so, you could tell he's being chastised and he knows it, he's keeping himself silent, but he's seething and he's steaming. We know he's steaming, and when he stands up, in the background immediately behind his head is a light fixture with oil-based lamps that is literally steaming. So we see this image right there on screen, setting up his emotional state right in line with the props. So it's a nice visual metaphor and the kind of thing that we do see from Rob Bowman on a fairly regular basis. Mulder and Scully are asked to leave, and Mulder decides to go back when they're not being as closely monitored. So he kills his oil lamp, Scully does as well, they walk back to the compound, and they see some sort of ceremony. A member of this kindred had apparently choked, possibly to death, right at the dinner table, and they refused to allow Scully to help out. And they see some kind of ceremony in a clay-filled cavern where he's essentially buried alive and left there. 
And when Mulder's checking it all out, the locals spot it and pull in. Meanwhile, Scully's been taken to a local room by Brother Andrew, who starts telling her about Brother Martin, who was thrilled by what he calls the human world on the outside world, and how they lost him, and he's upset about the way Brother Martin is behaving, and they want to take care of him. And while that's going on, the scene ends with Brother Andrew about to seduce Scully. He's got her on the bed, she's not resisting. Mulder bursts in after having escaped the hunt in the barn, and pulls her out. Now, these people are a fairly peaceful people. When they come out, they're surrounded by them, and again, purely visually, with almost no dialogue, they're basically told to leave. And that's all communicated by body language and positioning. Mulder and Scully head out. While this has been going on, there have been other murders going on, especially in that Maryland area, at that same club. Now, here's another X-Files first coming in. The latest victim, and one of the last possible victims, is played by Nick Lee. We're going to be seeing a lot more of Nick Lee starting about mid-season two, but right now he's just basically a pretty boy named Michael who's in a club when Brother Martin in his female form comes up, rubs his hand, and basically seduces him, takes him out. This time not even to a hotel, just to the car out front. Now, they're interrupted by police, and I guess one of the things that impressed the X-Files crew, particularly Rob Bowman, is that it was Nick Lee's idea to have... The car window so fogged over that he'd have to rub him clean himself in order to see what's going on outside. When he does, he witnesses the gender transformation, which confirms a theory that Mulder and Scully had been working on based on some of the things that they saw in the kindred community. So they are able to track Marty down with the leads that they got from Michael, who had a lot of heart pains, but he was interrupted before things got too far and was able to survive the attack. And it ends up with actually some pretty nice eyewitness statements as he's in the hospital bed. And Nick Lee does a very good job acting this, playing it kind of low-key, kind of chuckling. And really, you could tell he's nervous and doesn't really want to admit to what he saw, even though Mulder and Scully are there saying, this is off the record. We think you know something that you were uncomfortable telling the police. We're willing to listen. With that information, there able to track down Marty, but before they can capture him, the other kindred come seemingly out of nowhere and basically take him. And as the viewers, we even see the shadows fade away. So it's not that they've escaped, it's like they were there and now they're not. Some of these speeches in these last few minutes from the kindred, especially Brother Marty in his female form talking to the latest victim before he's taken away, start to give the impression that maybe they're not human. She's referring to the human world versus our world, and they're not going to leave her behind. It's going to soon be time to leave, although they will punish Brother Martin. They disappear. They're saying there's no way they can get through the police cordon, and Mulder says, if they did, there's only one place they're going to go. So they head back to the Steveston community, and this is back to those ambiguous endings. They show up, that cellar with the clay where people were being buried alive has been completely filled with clay and hardened. They head out to the crops, there's a giant crop circle, and that's the end of the episode. Cuts right from the crop circle to the credits. So again, this was the first episode I saw, and that had a big impact on me, that lack of closure. It's something we'd seen before in the X-Files, it's something we'll see many times later, but it was really my first exposure to network TV that didn't need to wrap everything up with a nice little bow. So this was not one of the best episodes of the series, but it has a lot going for it, and it is nice to see where this is going to be going in the long term. In the next episode, we get another episode that's fairly important to Scully's character, and that episode is Lazarus. See you here for that next time. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.